Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we discuss CEOs' priorities for the new year, why big tech is trying to scare us with existential threats, and why leaders' well-being is business critical. With me are MT's Antonia Garrett-Peel and Ailish Cronin. So first, Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back. This is our first podcast of the year together, and the big news from us is that this podcast will now be weekly, so you lucky listeners will be able to hear our voices far more often. As it's a new year, we're going to discuss our new year articles first, and the first one that we asked a selection of CEOs was, what will you be doing less of this year? So I'll just pick out one of these responses as it kind of straddled two themes that came up quite a lot. So quite a few of the answers that we got from CEOs focused on efficiency gains and people brought up all the usual suspects, convoluted meetings, time wasted wading through emails and broadly they expressed a desire to sort of whittle these down to be more concise and more focused. So Viv Paxinos, she's the CEO of Women Only Members Club Albright is an example of this. She said, I'm committing to doing less by saying no more often in the new year. Declining unnecessary meetings and peripheral commitments means I can build margin to think more deeply, consider trade-offs and opportunity costs before reacting, and connect more meaningfully with my team and customers. She also added that it means that she can protect space more sturdily, as she put it, for self-care practices, concluding, my hope is this focus makes me more available precisely when stakeholders need reassurance and wisdom. And a number of other CEOs also mentioned well-being and self-care, and spending less time on the things that take away from that. Interestingly, this was framed not just in terms of safeguarding sort of individuals' own well-being and resilience, but also as key to their performance. So in that sense, they also frame it as kind of a business imperative. So what about you, Ailish? Does this overlap with what CEOs were telling you? Yeah, in a, in a similar vein. So the question that I posed to CEOs was to tell us what they're prioritising in 2024. But we set them a challenge with this one to give us their priorities, but only doing it in 24 words. And they were all very good and they all stuck to the 24 word limit. And yes, supporting mental health was one of the topics, but also kind of looking at green initiatives and capitalising on AI. So there are a couple of um, little uh, resolutions that I've picked out. So Brian O'Kelly, who's co-founder and CEO of Scope3, said, we'll see who walks the walk on sustainability commitments and climate action as pressure mounts for businesses to be transparent about their carbon emissions. Um, Dr. Aidan Bell, who's the co-founder of EnviroBuild, now he gave us a poem based on sort of green initiatives. And his poem is, in 2024, businesses bloom green, sustainability, a vibrant sheen, eco-friendly dreams take flight, in every choice, doing what is right. Nature's ally, profits delight. <laughs> it rhymes, it rhymes. It does. <laughs> um, so yeah, a couple of points about um, environment and green initiatives there, but then also um, AI and diversity and inclusion did get a, a quite a significant mention. Pam Maynard, who's the CEO of Avand, said deployment of AI and DE and I are not mutually exclusive. In 2024, CEOs must commit to responsible AI to further progress and improve working culture. So it's all about incorporating AI into actually helping make your working culture better, not just profiting um, the business. 
Dr. Nick Taylor, CEO and co-founder of Unmind, said leaders should prioritise sustainable high performance by making mental health a strategic priority, combining technology with human support to empower whole organisations to flourish. So in a similar vein to what Pam Maynard was saying um, and, and making mental health part of their business strategy, especially now that we're in January and January is such a tough month for everybody, it seems um, highly significant to mention that uh, at the moment. And Doug Butler, who's the CEO of Perkbox, said, leaders should focus on culture and their people's welfare during challenging times so that when economies recover, employees are more easily retained and engaged. And then last but not least, Dr. Nicola Hodson, who's the CEO of IBM UK and Ireland, said, in the race to capitalise on AI, businesses that adopt an open, governed AI platform using trusted data sets will have a powerful competitive advantage. So AI, again, is a huge theme um, for what a lot of CEOs are prioritising this year. Um, but we're going to come on to that in a moment now with more AI pieces. Yeah, so if you thought that AI was going to fade away into the background again after all the uh, endless chats last year, then you will be in for a shock. AI is still here. We're still talking about it. I interviewed Matt Calkins, who's a founder and chief exec of Appian, which is a NASDAQ-listed software company. And we covered a lot of ground, including should we change the definition of what it means to be a human being? What are the disadvantages of freezing yourself to live in the future and why board games are a CEO's secret weapon? Certainly wasn't the discussion I was expecting to have on a rainy day in London. But he made some particularly interesting points on AI. One of those was that he warned that big tech is distracting society with existential threats. He claims we need to assert more data rights. So that's the number one thing we should be nailing down at the beginning of the AI era. Yet it's the last thing anyone seems to be talking about. He says the AI industry wants to talk about Terminator scenarios, not other issues, because they know that they're violating copyright left and right. The last thing they want is a speed bump, like having to care about other people's rights. And in a lot of these statements, like the, the um, White House statement and the Bletchley Park statement, he said that big tech have been arguing that we need some sort of anti-proliferation regime as a result of this existential threat he says but this helps them cement a monopoly they have not earned and it allows them to train almost at will on privately owned data provided they anonymize it and he said i want more privacy than that i want the things i create to have more defense than that and this was a particularly interesting point i think he said ai isn't a creator it's a reshuffler of data he said it's my data that's being reshuffled so i should own a piece of that game now he argues that businesses should be looking at private ai systems either by taking an open source AI and bringing it inside the firewall or by doing something that he calls, and this is going to get a bit technical now, but retrieval augmented generation. So the AI is very specifically looking through a set of data that you've given it rather than looking through massive databases. So he says that allows for a more private version of AI. Um, he also said that you know, AI currently has been seen as revolutionary because of the way it generates content. And that's certainly the kind of discussions have all been focused around that in the past year. But he says, actually, it's just as revolutionary for the way it accesses data and that the conversation is going to move on to this um, conversation about AI as a data access and synthesis tool and how that's going to be a major boost to the value of information. Because he says inside the typical corporation, most data is wasted because it isn't brought to bear the moment a decision needs to be made. And he gave an example of customer services. There may be a thousand systems, but when a customer is on the phone, generally the company is only using the data in one system to talk to them about their problem. Um, he says that centralizing data has just been too unrealistic. It doesn't work. But AI is the answer because it can synthesize the data from all of those systems very quickly and deliver you the answer that you need when you need it. 
And then finally, he said, in 2024, the year of talking is over. There's been a lot of hyperbole, of giant predictions. And he said, it's all nonsense. No way is an AI going to be as smart as a human this decade or write Shakespeare in seven years. AI is going to act like a teenager because the internet is written by teenagers. And he said, an AI is going to plateau because we've gotten all we can out feeding it. And now the hard work begins and we need to figure out how to get practical value. So he said, we're not going to make AI our new boss or counselor for life. We're just going to make it easier to pass, for example, customer communications and gain information from incoming emails. We're going to make it easier to appraise damage to the shell of a car after an accident. And we're going to evaluate the lifetime value of the customer while they're on the phone and get advice as to whether we should offer them a discount. But he said the, the winners of AI are not necessarily going to be these big tech firms, but they can be small um, businesses. So that is hopefully a positive note for a lot of our listeners to think that they actually have the, you don't need huge firepower to be able to progress quickly in this area. It's similar to what I was talking about when I went to see um, Evan Goldberg at NetSuite. Um, the advice that he provided for leaders that were looking to get started in AI was that just to, smart, to start small. You don't necessarily have to go in all guns blazing with all this firepower. Start small, keep it internal, use it on one system, and then master that, get a handle on that before you deploy it. It's all very well and good doing something that might look amazing. You know, you see all of these things that these crazy leaders are doing that the Elon Musks of the world and it all looks very impressive but at the end of the day what's it actually going to deliver is it going to deliver any value for your business is it actually specific enough for your business so just start small and work your way up with it I know it's very it's a very new and exciting thing but sometimes that's just the best way to to get a handle on it yeah, there's been a lot of discussion. It's all about this threat, how the robot's going to take over humans and not going to have any jobs. It'll be interesting how that's going down with consumers. Yeah, I mean, this sort of um, tallies a bit or reminds me of a finding by comms firm Edelman in its 2024 trust barometer, um, which has just been published in the last week. And they suggested that companies aren't focusing enough on taking consumers with them when it comes to innovation. So responses to the survey suggested that innovation is becoming increasingly politicised. And we sort of saw that during COVID a bit with um, suspicion of vaccines and with more right-wing figures kind of encouraging this or inciting this. And so one thing that came up in the survey is that people perceive that the benefits of innovation and scientific advances are skewed towards the rich. And it flagged a quite significant gap between right and left-leaning individuals in terms of their likelihood to reject innovations such as green energy, electric cars. So in America, this was actually a 41 percentage point difference between Democrats and liberals. Um, so basically what Edelman concluded was that companies need to pay as much attention to the process of acceptance of innovation and fostering this as they do to the actual innovation itself. It's interesting because reading through um, the piece that you put up, Antonio, about the trust barometer, there's a, a statistic there um, people were as likely to trust someone like me, someone that's like them, to tell them the truth about new innovations and technologies as a scientist and more likely than a company technical expert. And again, I think this is another hangover from COVID. I think people are kind of sick and tired of those in power or those that seem to have more authority than them telling them what to do and how to think. So they look to their peers or the everyman for the answer. So perhaps there's a little bit more suspicion towards uh, people in authority perhaps they don't feel as though they have their best interest at heart and I know that that's probably a big issue in business because primarily they're there to make profit they're there to to make money but then also they've got to balance that 
with bringing their they can't make money without their customers so it's that kind of balancing act they need to bring their customers with them otherwise it's not going to go anywhere I think this is really interesting because it does show that there's a large swathe of people who think that these innovations won't benefit them so there's a definitely a kind of a communications gap between these new technologies and actually thinking about how you're selling the benefits of them I guess to the, the average person in the street um, and the idea that there's something for sort of rich people, I find I find that point particularly interesting. People can find it tricky to, especially when you have an expert, a technology expert, they're often throwing out a lot of industry-specific jargon mm-hmm. that most of the general public won't understand. So I think it alienates them from that. If you're watching something on the news or you see a technology expert talking about it and they're using this highly specific language, then... And if you're not in that industry, you won't know what they're talking about. So therefore, it might be dismissed as something that's just for them or that's too highbrow for me. When in reality, if they just used simpler language and talked to people um, a bit more clearly, then perhaps that message would come across easy, more easily. Yeah, definitely. There's that communications issue. But also, you could also argue that perhaps they're doing that on purpose to bamboozle people because they don't want people to actually understand that they're ripping off everyone's data right, left and centre and not caring. So <laughs> it's an interesting point. I think it, you made a good point about the suspicion, people being more suspicious, I think, of authority. And that was another thing that I talked to Matt Calkins about. One thing we're talking about, the AI presents a huge challenge to personal identity because how can people retain control over their image and prove they're real when deep fakes are so prevalent? And we're going to see this a lot with the number of elections that are happening um, across the world uh, this year, including obviously the US election um, and the UK one, there's going to be a huge amount of misinformation, disinformation, um, these kind of deep fakes. So, you know, what's that going to do to our kind of society? And he said that we're just going to regain our natural scepticism. And it was particularly interesting because he says that our capacity for authenticity, because he said even today the most popular thing on television is a live event by far, um, he said our compulsion for authenticity is going to be intensified by our mistrust of anything that's being represented after the fact because it can be manipulated. I thought that was a really interesting point that you can only trust what you're seeing live. Mm-hmm. Although, Antonio, you have a story where that even that is not the case. Yeah, so this was a truly bizarre story um, that was born of the Guardian Australia investigation into this figure, Stephen Rees-Lewis, who was billed as the CEO of Hyperverse. Now, you probably haven't heard of it, but Hyperverse was a crypto fund that collapsed with huge losses for investors. In 2022 alone, these were estimated at 1.92 billion Australian dollars. Reese Lewis, somewhat unusually, had a very limited online footprint, which included most notably um, video footage of an online launch event for the fund where he gave a short address and an account on Twitter, as it was then known, that was active from a month before the launch event for just a further six months. So... You might think this is quite unusual in particular for someone with as impressive a resume as Rhys Lewis. He had, according to Hyperverse, a master's degree from Cambridge. He was also said to have worked at Goldman Sachs, um, launched an IT startup and sold another company to Adobe. The only problem was when Guardian Australia got in touch with these organisations, none of them could find any record whatsoever of him which is not so surprising as it turns out, as Rhys Lewis is actually an Englishman living in Thailand, real name Stephen Harrison. Harrison, whose identity was exposed following the Guardian report um, by a YouTuber, and then came forward with his story. 
He confirmed that he was paid to act the part after being approached by a friend of a friend. He was working as a freelance television presenter at the time and says that his agent told him that he was acting out a role to represent the business and that many people do this. He told Guardian Australia that he did not know that he had been presented as having fake credentials and said that he felt very bad about the fact that people had lost money in relation to the scheme, that he wasn't involved in it and that he hadn't pocketed any of the investor losses himself. But yeah, it's a really fascinating story because there'd been kind of rumours swirling about the internet um, since his sort of first appearance, really, that he was in fact fake. In the wake of the report, there was a lot of speculation on forums and in comment sections about whether he was like an AI simulation. But actually, it turned out to just be a good old fashioned analogue trick in the sense that he was just an actor being paid to act a role. It's wild, isn't it? (laughs) What a story. I think this is a prime example of needing to have a lot of trust in people that are using technology such as this. Even though this isn't AI technology, it's still not, it's still fake technology. You know, it's still, there's a a falseness um, to it there. When you hear stories like this, you see why people are becoming so sceptical of those in authority because if you can fake this then where do you draw the line where you never you don't know who you can trust then so is he where do you draw that line yeah i also kind of wonder where the reputation of crypto is going from here because there has just been this sort of string of scandals we saw in 2023 there was sam bankman freed downfall of the sort of crypto wunderkind there was binance's chief exec cz and then obviously there's the sort of collapse of investment schemes like this so yeah I do kind of wonder where this leaves us going into 2024. Although obviously the big news is that the um, Bitcoin ETFs have been approved by the SEC in the US which uh, is quite a landmark moment because it's allowing investors access to, to um, or sort of slight exposure to the, the ups and downs in crypto certainly with Bitcoin anyway and it will also necessitate these big organizations buying Bitcoin to own the assets at the same time. Um, So I think it's really interesting that these big companies are getting involved and they've been pushing for it for a while and it's finally come through. I think they were dragging their heels on that decision for a long time. But again, it's kind of interesting because even on the day itself, I'm sure listeners already heard on the day itself when the the long long awaited announcement was going to be made about whether they'd approved them or not, somebody um, hacked their Twitter account and said that it had been approved when it hadn't, which obviously shot the Bitcoin price up, which then very quickly shot back down again once they realised, um, once the SEC came out and said, to be clear, we, that wasn't us, It's we've been hacked, that we haven't approved the Bitcoin ETFs yet, but then later did. Uh, but it, again, interesting to sort of see that, you know, there are lots of bad actors out there. And actually, even when you're coming talking about any technology, really, and even the good old analogue somebody in a room pretending to be somebody else, um, which is also uh, what happened with this Matt Calkins at Appian. He's been involved in, um, or Appian's been involved in a major espionage, corporate espionage case in the States with one of its rivals. Um, and the claim was it, it, its rival Pegasystems had apparently used one of its employees to sort of spy on Appian. Uh, and Matt told me that the only reason they found out about this was because of a whistleblower. And he said a former employee of, of Pegasystems told us that 
they had what they were doing and he said what they were doing is actually really hard to police um because i said well what what lesson is there for other chief execs to kind of avoid that happening and he said well i'm actually not sure i've got great advice to how to stop that level of espionage other than if you see it make the penalty high enough so that even if the perpetrator thinks they'll get caught only 10 percent of the time they still won't be willing to do it but you know it just goes back to that age-old thing doesn't it, of who you can trust and there are going to be bad actors out there regardless of the technology that's available. So another story that we had this week, which we could probably have a very long debate about which of these categories we fall into, is this new study from Henley Business School's World of Work Institute that's identified six types of workers based on their attitudes in relation to work. And this ranges from the largest segment, work-life balance advocates, no prizes for guessing what their priorities are, to other groupings that variously focus on how a company treats its staff, its record on environmental and social issues, or simply the size of their own paycheck. The researchers' point with the study is really that a one-size-fits-all approach to attracting and retaining employees won't cut it in today's tough talent market. They found that 30% of the workforce is looking for a new job, including a whopping 46% of people who moved to jobs in the past year. And so they're really urging employers not to sit on their laurels and to think about moving towards a more bespoke approach um, to working patterns and benefits tailored more to the individual employee. So one thing they flagged, for example, is not to be too hasty in doing away with the flexibility that sort of arose during the pandemic. It's interesting talking about flexible working in the pandemic because I also interviewed Alice Della Hunty, who's the president of National Grid Electricity Transmission. She's in charge of a nearly 3,000 strong team of engineers and other workers who keep the electricity flowing through England and Wales. She's got a big challenge over the next um, few years because she's also in charge of the Great Grid Upgrade, which is the largest overhaul of the electricity gridding generations. Um, and the project's got a couple of aims. And the first is to help the UK meet its ambitious target of becoming net zero by 2050, which she still thinks is achievable, even though I know lots of um, UK PLC are beginning to wonder if that is true, particularly with Sunak's um, U-turning on some of the green policies um, at the end of last year. Uh, but secondly, the aim is to expand the system to meet the predicted 50% increase in demand for electric power by 2035, which is, you know, as more people adopt electric vehicles and heating systems um, and probably in future air conditioning conditioning units if um, the, the kind of weather continues to change with climate change. Um, and it's a shift that's going to require sort of an additional 400,000 people, a trebling of electricity generation and five times more transmission infrastructure. So I pylons and cables being built in the next seven years than the UK has made in the last 30. So this is a huge, huge project. And I think it's particularly interesting because um, a point that I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of before, but that if you think about it, the electricity transmission um, network was based around the coal fire power stations, which were running up the centre of the country. Um, and a lot of the fossil fuels are now being replaced with wind power. So it's a lot of the network now has to move to coastal areas to actually bring the um, the wind onto onshore from the offshore farms. Um, so there's going to be a lot of change um, there over the next few years, which I think is fascinating. But getting back to the point, the pandemic, um, she took over as chief exec during or just as the pandemic was in its at its height. Um, and she's obviously running a team of engineers and people who are out working in the field as well as an HQ. Um, and we've already mentioned Elon Musk in this podcast. I wondered if we could get through a whole podcast without mentioning him. But here is his second mention. Um, you know, he obviously that, that he made that famous um, 
statement that his office workers needed to get back uh, into the office and to not upset the factory workers who didn't have the choice to stay at home. Um, And it was quite interesting talking to her about how she manages that. And she said that she's very clear that keeping the power flowing is a priority throughout the business and that the workers that do that are the kind of key people. So it sort of prevents hierarchies from forming between head office and frontline workers because it's very much a case of the the head office is there to support the frontline staff. She said there are constant checks that the procedure is watertight and the right culture is seeded throughout the business. So are the basic operating models right? Do people have enough clarity at a team level? Are there enough links between teams? And she said, honestly, this has felt harder recently. And that is possibly because some of the unwritten, uncodified links and interfaces got weaker during COVID. Um, so she said that they're, they're resetting that and trying to bring back that clarity. And it's a journey that they're still going on. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. There probably are a lot of kind of, of those, yeah, under, uh, like uncodified, unwritten sort of practices and habits that naturally are there in a team that kind of broke down a bit over covid um and obviously in in, a, in in an area like that that really matters and she also said that in order to prevent these sort of hierarchies forming she uses what she calls an interesting thought experiment to determine the importance of any given role she said if someone didn't turn up for work how long would it be before you had a problem and she said i know that for my control room staff it would be hours where she said i could disappear for a while and it would be fine so i think that's it's quite it's quite a nice way of thinking about your teams when you're running these huge organizations to just bear in mind that you might think that all these hierarchies of senior people are very important which obviously they are but those people on the front line are the people that are actually keeping the business going and you need to kind of make sure that they're feeling supported and prioritized as well and then just to go right back to the start when we were talking about the well-being point let's have a nice round off in the podcast but um she made a good message for other leaders as we all dive back into january and she and a bit like you were saying, I think, Ailish, about these, this well-being being business critical. And she said, and she's unfortunately has experienced some sort of accidents at work, which are obviously in her context very serious. And she said, in big operational roles, you always have to ask, am I well rested enough? And is my head clear enough to deal with an emergency right now? She said, that helps me stay focused on whether I've had enough sleep, if I need a break and have the right support. And she said, the worst outcome is that we're in a crisis scenario and I'm not rested enough to think clearly. And I think while not many of us are running sort of divisions that are as big as that with the kind of implications that she is um, having to deal with, I think it's a good message that any leader could probably take home with them <laughs> and think about, you know, are you in the right headspace to be able to deal with something if it went wrong? I think that's also good advice that leaders can give to their more senior subordinates as well, people that are perhaps a little bit more on the ground as it were in the office a bit more often who are leading these big teams that are generating revenue for the CEO's business it's a case of leading by example um, which I think a lot of leaders still forget to do um, and realize that your people are looking to you to know how to deal with certain things and if you're open about saying I'm actually not well rested enough to do this right now it might give them the confidence to speak up about their own situation or um and if you create that it's that kind of goes back to that psychological safety that is brought up quite a lot um and i think especially now we're coming into the new year this is the perfect time i think to introduce that 
Great. Now we're on to some village notices. Ailish, you have the first one. Yes. So Management Today's 35 Women Under 35 Awards are back for 2024. Uh, for more than two decades, these awards have recognised the exemplary work of brilliant female talent in the early stages of their careers. To be eligible for entry, they must be based in the UK, but can work in any industry or for any size of business. Previous winners of this award include Stella McCartney, Dido Harding, Martha Lane Fox, Shabri Lakhani and Karen Blackett. So for more information on how to enter, please go onto the MT website. There'll be more information there. Deadline for entries is the 15th of February. Fantastic. And yeah, I would encourage everybody to enter to that. It's really, um, we had a lovely photo shoot last year. We got to meet lots of the winners and it really does help people's careers. Um, so it's definitely worth um, getting involved in that. Um, also, if you like our podcast, you might also like our sister title, Work Magazine's What If podcast. All episodes of the latest series, which is series four, are out now with series five coming in March. Um, each episode explores what would happen if something fundamental changed in the world of work and business. Topics this series include what if you could brainwash staff, with academics discussing whether workplace application of nudge theory is always ethical, especially in light of recent rapid advances in neurotechnology. Series 4 also explores cancel culture with Seven Trent HR director Neil Morrison and journalist Toby Young, the death of expertise, extreme wealth accumulation and what if there was no employment law. You can find it on all the usual podcast places. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year.